Can you believe it? We're at Genesis 50. I don't even remember when we started the Genesis series. Uh, it was a while ago. It was some spring years ago that we started the Genesis series. Uh, we desired at the time, at least as I had proposed it or thought through it and prayed through it with elders and pastors of the other congregations, uh, at first we conceived of it as a preaching through the first 11 chapters. I felt that it was time or thought that there was a good opportunity for us to speak to some of the biggest questions of our day. Where did we come from? Is there morality? Are there standards? What does it mean to be accountable to God? What are the results of the fall? How does sin affect us? And what started out as Genesis 1 through 11 has now blossomed to us walking through the entirety of the book. This is the first chapter, the first installment of the story of humanity, the story of redemption, the, the way that God has worked in the world is contained for us and described for us in the Bible as one whole book, and we are about to close now the first chapter, so to speak. And as we read the 50th chapter of the book of Genesis, we're going to be thinking about this in two different ways. One, of course, we're going to consider the specifics of this passage But I also want to consider how this passage specifically fits into the narrative or the theme of the entire book. And I want to do that not only because we're finishing it and we've walked through the whole thing, so it's a good time for reflection, but I want to look back at the whole book and all the themes because I think that's what Moses is doing as well. I think that he would desire those who come after and read this to consider the last number of chapters of Genesis as a a way to put a stamp on all that he's been telling us in the entirety of the book. I say all that to tell you that in short, what we're going to find is that Genesis, like every other book of the Bible, is a book of grace. More than that, that the book of Genesis is a book of God's grace through faith. And then here's the line, and if I had to title Genesis 50, I would say that Genesis 50 is a stamp on the end of a theme that we've been hearing all the way through, and that is that this is a book of grace through faith from garden to grave. You see how those both start with G? How memorable. This is a book about God's working, specifically God being gracious and the receiving of God's gracious work through faith from creation to coffin. You see how those both start with C? You see how memorable this is? God is gracious He's told us who He is. He shows us how to live in light of who He is. He gives grace. We respond in faith. And all of this takes place in every aspect of life, with every breath, all the way down until we run out. That's going to be the story of Genesis, and we're going to see it specifically now in the life of Joseph. So I'm going to begin reading first verse of Genesis 50. We're going to find Joseph mourning over the death of his father Jacob. And the end of the chapter, we're going to see the end of Joseph's life. So let's consider the 50th chapter of Genesis. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, 
If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizram. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the, field, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Mekur, the son of Manasseh, who were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. He was put in a coffin in Egypt. The end of Genesis does not have a tidy ending. If you've been paying, paying attention through the entirety of the book, you know that the major problem has been the major problem since the third chapter. That is that as a result of sin, death has come. The wages of sin is death. That is a true conviction of Scripture from beginning to end. 
And if you've been paying attention and you realize that God has been gracious and He keeps stepping in and He has a plan to redeem, you may have been wondering, well, is it going to be fixed by the end of Genesis? In fact, you may believe or think to yourself that one of the reasons we remember the people in Genesis, all the patriarchs, the stories of these men so clearly is because it all worked out for them in the end. Because they found a way to skirt the problem. But the reality is, is the story of Genesis through Jacob, which we saw at the beginning of Genesis chapter 50, all the way through to Joseph at the end of chapter 50, and Joseph so far has been the best hero we have. He more or less acts honorably, and yet still, like his father, he meets death. That old enemy remains. Death, it seems, as far as experience goes, still reigns. And so the major question that we'd be left with at the end of Genesis, if Genesis 49 was a historical summary, a way to describe and let people who come after this say, well, where did we come from and what are our people like and why are we named this? If that is a historical summary, then Genesis 50 gives us an example. in light of spiritual realities, that this is a theological chapter as much as it is anything else. It offers a way to consider God and then to live in light of Him despite the circumstances of death all around. And so what Moses has offered to us in all of Genesis is a sweeping, glorious introduction to the God of the universe excuse by the time we get to this point to not ask or to think in big categories concerning life. Joseph, representative of mankind, striving and holding on and thinking about the promises of God, God working behind the scenes to bring out something glorious and something good from a world that has gone very, very wrong. And what Moses shows us is that God, in the midst of everything that happens, He has given us Definitive statements that we can answer following the phrase, God is. Who is God? It's a wonderful question to ask of any passage of the Bible that we read, specifically as we come to end of books. And what Moses has showed us is this, that God is eternal. He existed before anything in the beginning, God. He is triune, that it was in His good pleasure and in His eternal relationship, His perfect eternal relationship forever that He determined to create. He is creative. More than this, He is personal. He is a God who desires to be known and walk with His people. That God is self-sustaining. He does not need anything from us. That God is merciful, that He is holy. His mercy shines because, first and foremost, His holiness has been made known. He has standards. He does all things well. Perfection is the permanent state of his being and the circumstances surrounding him. God is gracious and giving. He is faithful to present himself and to present good things to people who don't deserve it and have not earned it. God is present. I think that's what it means in the rest of the Bible, at least mostly what it means. When this phrase, how Jacob is carried forward, we just saw him embalmed and then buried, but the way that he is carried forward 
is mainly through this phrase that we worship and we praise and we give thanks to the God of Jacob, but then perhaps more pointedly, we are those who seek the face of the God of Jacob. What we learn perhaps most pointedly in Jacob's life is that God is not only personal, but He is present, that He desires to be with us. Jacob's lasting testimony and the thing that he insists upon those who would come behind him is this, that God will be with you, and He wants to be with you, and He will visit you, seek Him. Not only that He can be known, that he will, but He will be present. And then, of course, we've seen that even in the midst of death, and perhaps most pointedly in Joseph's life, why we've titled this last section of Genesis, God Meant Good, because the one aspect of God's character, His nature, the reality of who He is, that is operating in Joseph's life is the sovereignty of God, the idea that He is ruling and in control. He reigns even when it seems like He is absent. God's sovereignty is on display in Genesis 50. And what I want to do is walk through the specifics of the chapter, and then we're going to just park out more or less on verses 17 through 20, because Joseph's response in presenting who God is and then showing us how to live in light of that God, I believe will be the most informative from this chapter. A few things first in order to get to the 17th verse. I've already described, I think, what Moses is doing is he has given us in all of Genesis a picture of who God is. And now through the specifics of these lives, we're going to get to a picture of his sovereignty. But a few few things first. It tells us at the beginning of Genesis 50 that, surprise, surprise, Joseph is weeping again. He's just an emotional guy. He weeps again for good reason because he's mourning his father's death. It tells us in Genesis 50 that he was embalmed. It was a practice, of course, that was very significant in ancient days, especially in Egypt. And for those of us who want to perhaps put a more, you know, pointed or more obvious illustration in there, Joseph was in the process of overseeing the mummification of his father, which is really interesting. It's a long process for preservation of the body. Now, I learned quite a bit about embalming and mummification through the week. Not a lot of it is going to make it into this sermon. Except for this one fact, did you know that when King Tutankhamun, King Tut, was mummified, that they used linseed oil? And for those of you who are careful in shop scenarios with this kind of stuff, apparently the wet oil left in the rags of King Tut at one point spontaneously combusted in his tomb so that now what they've found is that there's like burnt charred remains and the only explanation for it is that the rags used to mummify him exploded. Now this was interesting to me because I was using linseed oil this week and I was paranoid about it. So there you go. You came on a Sunday morning, you learned that King Todd exploded in his tomb because of mummification. That same process, at least in some part, is taking place for for Jacob. There's all kinds of interactions here of, of Jacob and the Egyptians, the way that God's people are almost undercover, not by their own choice, but they keep going back to their promised land. They're not even known there. They're called Egyptians. So there's a lot to, to consider here about the way that they are sojourning. They're strangers in a foreign land 
and still holding on to the promise. And one of the most obvious ways to show this duality that they're living in is that Jacob is essentially given an Egyptian, almost royal burial. The Egyptians themselves weep for him for 70 days, which has been noted that it's two less days than was customary for when a pharaoh dies. He's, giving a very, he's given a very honorable death, and then Joseph is given the honor of leaving Egypt and going and burying his father. So Jacob has died, and he is gone, and he's been mourned. And immediately following his death, attention turns to what is left of the dysfunction of the family. You recall last week that in the blessing of each of the brothers, we realize and remember that their sins and their problems have followed them through life. And though they have had an existence that seems peaceable enough, we realize that they are worried. They're worried about their father's death. Sorry for the noises this makes. I forgot my little... They're worried that when they go back that Joseph is going to be mean to them because they were so mean to him, or that Joseph will be evil to them because of their evil to him. They were evil to him. Now, a couple things about their confession here, and they're asking for forgiveness. I don't know about you, but when I read this, every single time I think they make a massive strategic mistake, and that is rather than just going and saying, please forgive us, they say, Dad made us say this. Did you notice that? Forgive your brother. Dad says, I have to forgive you, so I forgive you. Or... Worse yet, in their circumstance, go apologize and say you're sorry for how you wronged them. Dad thinks I have to say I'm sorry and that I wronged you. But I think what they're doing is they're trying to walk a very thin line. They're walking the thin line between, one, the, the negative response that would come from making this seem like they're being forced to do it, but second, perhaps parlaying the mourning and the honoring of this father's death to say, Joseph, they're still relying on a on a respect, so that maybe, out of respect for their father, they would be spared. But really what they've done is they've given us an occasion, and they've given Joseph an occasion to handle two things simultaneously. This is where the details of Genesis 50 bring us to a theological question. Joseph's brothers are wondering maybe what we have still been wondering all the way since the 37th chapter, and that is, how can we make sense of the evil that was done to Joseph by his own family, and how do we make sense of the idea that God's people, despite holding on to and knowing they have a promised land in Canaan, are now living in Egypt in all of these crazy circumstances? What are we to make of God's activity in the midst of this? And then secondarily, and so these are the two questions, what do we make of God's activity in the midst of this? And secondarily, how should we respond when God is gracious to reveal himself, then the next question becomes, how do we then live? How do we live when we think about a world that we don't understand, that doesn't make sense, that has evil all in it, when there's family problems like there is here in the middle of Genesis 50? What do we say concerning God? And then more than that, how should we live in response 
Is God still in control? Is He still gracious? Is He still good? Can He handle it? And then pending, what we answer to that question, I think, comes the next result, and that is this, that you will always live in accordance with your theology, that what you believe will be practiced. The Bible tells us that in the end result, our actions and our commitments and our desires will ultimately betray our trusts. And it's that reality, this question of who is God and then how should we live, embodied in Joseph, I think that makes him such a remarkable character in Scripture. Upon hearing the apology, and I don't think that's in full quotes, I think they probably did mean it, maybe we'll just half quote apology. Upon hearing this apology, the response from Joseph is remarkable. He asserts the complete providential sovereignty of God. Now, these words, you've probably heard them before. If you've been in churchy places or if you've been a Christian for a long time, you've probably heard the word sovereignty, you've probably heard the word providence, and I just for a moment want to consider these realities. What Genesis is telling us is this, that God is both able and willing to govern all the universe according to His good pleasure. That somehow, in some way, there is not a single turn of phrase, not a single action, not a single idea that escapes His purview, that He is, in fact, totally and utterly in control. Sovereignty means that God has the power and the right to rule perfectly. Providence is Him putting His rights and His pleasure and His will into practice in the world. Providence is the way that God's sovereignty works out in real time. Now, these things are mysterious. It's why we're so grateful for moments like this in Genesis 50 that give us clarity concerning that reality. What the brothers meant for good, there is something going on behind what we can see that is more important and more defining for the way that the world works than what our eyes capture. This idea of providence, it is massively important for the understanding of how God orders and governs the affairs of the world. You must at some point personally wrestle with this question, and if providence is too big or too ethereal or too weird for you, maybe I would just put it to you this way. You must, as every human being must, at some point wonder and come to a conclusion about God's governing of the world, more specifically about His governing of you. Is God in control or not? Are you being bounced around the universe in an uncontrollable way, constantly tempted to believe that you are in charge or that you are a victim or that you are unseen? Or is God ordering things in such a way that He will be glorified and He will be seen as ever-present and loving and good to you? In many ways, this is the greatest question that any human being will ask and answer in life. 
who is running this show. It is pride that keeps someone from humbling themselves and admitting or wrestling with the idea that God is in control and living in a way with hands open. It is humility that makes someone realize that they are not in control, that God is in fact God. It is in sovereignty and in providence where the godness of God comes most fully into view. Nearly every Christian, and especially every group of Christians, has had to wrestle with this. They've had to put into words, how do we say what this means? How do we land in the mystery? So every good creed or statement of faith has included some way in which Christians handle this understanding of the conception of God, that despite everything we see and all the sin of humanity and all that is going on around us, that in some way that we cannot see, God is ultimately in control. I'll give you a few words from the London Baptist Confession of 1689. Here's one way that some Christians have dealt with this. They say, God, who is the good creator of all things, and these are some of the words that they use to describe how He governs the world, He upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures and things to the end for which they were created. This is the statement that Christians put forward to say, what does the Bible tell us concerning God? God does these things. He upholds and He directs and He disposes and He governs all things according to the free and immutable counsel of His will. That's the way that they say it. I'm grateful for smart people, thoughtful people, godly people who have taken time to write words down. In addition to if we're considering, well, who is God? And I gave you a whole list that Moses has given us, and Genesis 50 begs us to consider this one massive question. Who is God in the actions and the upholding of the universe, especially in light of evil? We must say that there is no room for God to be scrambling or for things to be outside of His view or outside of control, His control. Now, one of the ways that we have to understand this, and the way that Joseph puts it, you meant this, God meant this. What he has in view is a statement that Christians have also considered down through the ages. And that is the idea of first and secondary causes. That's the way that they say it. And if you're the kind of person who is sitting here and you have said about 98% of your words, Lance, are directly past me. I'm more confused right now than I was five minutes ago. If that's where you are, I want to invite you or I want you to think about what I believe unlocks the key to this in many, many ways, and that is that in God's economy, the way that He governs the world, we need to think about why things happen in a bigger view than just who, meaning one, is responsible. And Scripture constantly presents situations where mankind, human beings, have agency. We can cause things. Our actions matter but because God is sovereign and because He is over all and through all and in all, and because ultimately His will will not be thwarted, God is a first cause, a primary cause. So when we say to one another, who caused that or what caused that, we usually assign it 100%, one person 60%, the other person 40%. That's not the way to think about this in Genesis 50. Joseph is not saying you meant it for evil, but you were only 49% in control, and God meant it for good, and luckily he was 51% in control. No, in God's economy and his governing of the world, there can be 100% responsibility 
for multiple parties. And I know this is brain-breaking. But Joseph says it plainly, and eventually the mysteries of the Bible need to be received by us as much as the good things of the Bible or the things that are easy to understand. Here's the mystery that Joseph says so plainly. No, 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 you were responsible and you were evil, and I know what you meant in it. But also, God was working, and God was meaning, and God was behind, and maybe more so, God was over. And so, if you're in that spot where you think, well, wow, I don't know what to think about this. This is so hard. I don't know. I would say two things. Go look for good definitions of providence and think through them and say, is that how I would say it? And if I come to find that in Scripture and then, and then beyond that, I want you to think about terms like first and second causes. This is the way that Christians have found the Bible explaining this. God is able to organize the world because He is the first and ultimate cause, and He does so. causes to have weight in the universe. So my, my job this morning when I read Genesis 50 and I knew that it was coming in over and over was to rejoice in and to simply explain to you the way that God mysteriously governs all things, even evil and sin. So are we done with that now? And we'll never be done with it. Because the reality is, is that in your life and in my life, we all are going to be faced. The question is, do I have faith that this is how the world works? Because evil things are still happening. Worse than that, evil things happen and people mean it. Maybe more hauntingly than that, evil things happen and you mean it. In fact, I think that is the depth and the bottoming out of someone realizing sin in their life. When there is no other explanation for their actions other than, I just wanted to, okay? When all excuses are gone. And the reality of evil in our worlds, and the reality of suffering, and the reality of sin can be a very, very difficult thing to get through. What it's going to take to understand this is to fight to see God and to have faith in Him. And what Joseph has done, the way that he navigates unspeakable suffering in his life, the way that he lives with things that seem like they're not perfect and not done, God's people are living not in the promised land. The way that Joseph handles the things that he cannot answer is with the certainty of who he knows God is. And what I want you to see here is that God dis disclosing and revealing to us the way that He sovereignly governs the world is not Him being mean and pushing Himself on us. But in fact, what Joseph has found is that when we see God in light of His perfect providence, and when we give God His just due as the God of the universe, it is the true path to freedom and blessing and life and joy. What I would long for for you and for me when we consider evil that's happened, bad things that have happened, is for you to come to a conclusion about who God is and then to experience the fruits of surrendering to God in His kind rule.
Joseph has faith that God is not abandoned and that God is able to work through even the sin. And you could use different words. These are hard words. He works around the sin. He, he means it in a different way. He brings it about ultimately for glory. Joseph has faith that God is there. And this will be the question that each of us has to deal with. Ultimately, you will either live in this life with all of its ups and downs, and you will say, God is in control and I will give joyfully. I will give joyfully control of my life to Him. I will entrust myself to Him because God is and He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. If I don't see it here, I'll see it in the next life. You will be either a person who summarizes God in that way and positions yourself in that way, or you will reject that God is in control, that He is worthy of your respect, that He is ultimately able to carry you, and you will trust yourself. Or you will be burdened by and ultimately be in bondage to the evil that you see around you and done to you in this life. That's why this is so significant. These are life and death kind of scenarios. Is God able to keep you through from the beginning to the end? Is God good and gracious and trustworthy from garden all the way to the grave. Adam and Eve struggled in their faith. And they said, I don't know, I think he's withholding. I just don't know. I, maybe there's something that we could control that he doesn't want us to control. And they fail and they fall. Abraham is rejoiced over because he has faith and it's counted to him as righteousness. And all the way down the line for un expected reasons, sometimes with no good reason, what you find is that God's people constantly hold on to Him, and they say, He will deliver us. He is good, and He is able. That's the question that we must answer. Is God able? Is He in control? Joseph says yes, and I just want to note the fruit in his life. What is the fruit of giving yourself over to a God who is perfectly in control and perfectly present and perfectly loving, even in mysterious ways. What's the fruit in someone's life who believes something like that? Well, first, he is able to forsake revenge. He says to his brothers when they come to him and they ask for forgiveness, he says, well, why are you asking me? Am I, am I God? Am I the judge of the world? It is a conception of God's providence it is the giving over of control to him that allows Joseph to release from himself the burden of being sinned against. He doesn't have to put it right. And if you have ever felt the burden of feeling like being, you've been sinned against or wronged against and you need to put it right, it just eats away at you. Those people deserve this and this situation's undone and I need to be out there and active, and I need to punish, and I need to make sure they know. What you realize is that Joseph, despite being sinned against in spectacular ways, is now living with his hands open, and he says, I know that God is the judge of the universe. He will ultimately make things right. I am not going to take up the task of revenge. You know, one of the fruits of believing in and trusting the providence of God 
It's the freedom of living a resent-free life. You don't have to resend evil for evil. You don't have to right every wrong. God will ultimately be the good judge of the world. It takes faith to give up revenge. But Joseph does so joyfully, and he says to them, you don't have to come to me and ask. God's going to judge all of that. I am not putting myself in his place. It's exhausting to, be the, to pretend to be the judge of the universe. It really is. And God wants to free you from that task. Secondarily, look at the freedom that Joseph receives, the contentment that he experiences in his soul by understanding his own circumstances in faith. What does it mean for his inner life to be able to say with certainty, no, 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 I know that you were doing some things, and I know that I'm in Egypt now, and I know that this hurt, but ultimately that doesn't define me. My circumstances are defined by God's activity and His intent for my life. Contentment, real, actual contentment, I believe is the desired fruit of understanding and trusting a sovereign God. Do you believe that God's desires for you and what He gives and how He directs and how He guides will ultimately result in your fulfillment eternally? Do you believe that? Or do you find it difficult and in striving and in constant longing, do you really subtly struggle with the idea that God is getting it wrong? Are you defined by your inabilities? Are you defined by the sin of others? This would have been a very real struggle for Joseph. We've read it in grave detail all the way, the way that he was wronged. And when they come and ask for forgiveness, Joseph reveals that it's his understanding of God that gives him contentment of soul. It is God's control of the world that gives him this gift. So he has forsaken revenge. What a freedom. He has received contentment of soul. What a gift. More than that, to know that God is working in a world that has gone sideways and is upside down and where people really sin and there are negative consequences, Joseph somehow maintains hope. Hope is a precious thing. Hope is what makes tomorrow something that we want to jump into. Hope is receiving the promise of tomorrow, the promise of future good things, and living now as though they are yours. So Joseph, just like his father before him, and just like his grandfather before that, and just like his great-grandfather before that, keeps living as though he's home when he's not. Why? Because he hopes and trusts that one day God will deliver every single thing that he promised. The fruit of believing that God is both able and is actually governing the affairs of the world, a fruit of it is the ability to look at the future in hope. If you're paying attention, what Joseph has received is an ability to give up resentment for the past. He is gaining contentment over the present, and he is looking to the future with hope. Why? Because God is sovereign and able and governing the world. There's an additional thing, perhaps the practice or the real-life reconciliation that takes place that is the fruit of trusting God in these circumstances. 
when one is content with who they are and what they have, and when one has given up the right to resent or to give revenge, and when one hopes for a future and knows that they're secure, what they are able to do is to joyfully forgive, from the heart forgive, to release and to love others who have wronged us. And so Joseph gives us the example of speaking in his kindness of providing for those who have wronged him. Imagine this. He not only speaks comforting words to them, but then he provides all that they need. The very people who cast him into a pit lied for decades to his father about him being dead. These very ones now receive his kindness, his love, and his goodness. What an example of forgiveness. Forgiveness is possible when you have entrusted yourself to a God who is in control. Joseph, in releasing the past and in finding contentment in the present and in hoping for the future, is able to live with those around him in a way that is loving and forgiving. In a word, Joseph has been loved by God, and he is therefore empowered to love despite his circumstances. This is what it's going to mean to live in faith. Genesis ends with a coffin. It ends with a grave. Everyone is still dying. They have not received all of the promises, but what they have received is the definitive evidence of God's activity and His nature and His personhood in their lives, and it gives them hope. Genesis is a book of faith. It's a story of faith for the family of God, and it invites us to faith to look forward to the way that God is going to bring about redemption and be faithful to all of His promises. I would ask you today and I would encourage you to find the ways in which you are attempting to govern your own life. Find the areas especially that are most painful that you do not understand and offer them to God and ask Him to give you the fruit of contentment, the fruit of faith, the fruit of hope, so that you can live in this life knowing and seeking and longing for God's presence. That's the desire. That's the invitation. Let's pray. God, thank you for Scripture. We thank you for the way that you teach us. Spirit of God, I ask that you would uncover for us all of the obvious Maybe more than that, all the subtle, the unseen ways that we have been holding on to control of our lives. God, I pray that we would be able to fully release the judgment and the resentment for circumstances and situations and people that have harmed us and hurt us. God, I pray that we would find contentment for the present. I pray that we would trust that you're a good father, a loving God that is not far off, that is not out to harm us, but you have our good in mind. God, help us to live now with contentment of heart. And I pray, God, that in our thinking to the future and in our interacting with others that we would desire and see hope for reconciliation. God, give us the power to forgive. 
We ask for faith to believe these things. Thanks for revealing yourself. God, make us faithful as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.